Welcome to The Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, March 25th. Upsets, upsets, upsets. That was the story on day three of the 2022 Miami Open. 11 of the 14 women's seeds in play were knocked out on the day. It was chaos across the grounds. That said, that is, of course, what we have come to expect from so many different WTA events that we've seen unfold over the past few seasons, of course. We also had a men's event going on as well, and there were some results for us to discuss, but certainly with the seeds getting in play on the women's side today, that will be the focus of today's show. That said, when there's chaos to discuss, when there's tennis to cover, when you're recording a podcast past midnight on Thursday evening, there's only one man you can turn to to help you recap all of that action. That is the guest we have joining us once again on today's show. And I've said it before, I'll say it again here today. He's essentially a co-host at this point of the Mini Break Podcast, a man whose work you recognize as an editorial producer and writer for Tennis.com, for all things Tennis Channel. He is our friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. You stayed up late. That means there must be chaos. How you doing? Listeners, it was a day that was so chaotic. Alex woke me up out of a deep sleep and I said, how did you get in my room? But here I am ready to talk about it with you. Yeah, you know, public transportation, shout out to the infrastructure bill. I can get from Indianapolis to New York now in under six hours. So knock, 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 I'm there. We're recording live. Now I feel like Zoom is a de facto in-person meeting at this point, is that fair? I would say I'd say we're building back better every minute of this. <laughs> You know, I did two minutes at the end of a, a podcast with Mark Lucero. We recorded on the GSP, actually, funny enough, earlier today on Thursday. It's been published by now. And we are inching closer and closer to do it, doing it again here. I won't subject my listeners to that. The over-under is 51 and a half votes over-under on the Supreme Court confirmation. It didn't happen already, did it? No. But I yeah. would say, oh, oh. I think it's <laughs> April 4th. Yeah. Slight over. Slide over. Yeah. Collins, Murkowski, Romney, Sass? Fair enough. I yeah. mean, I'm not even expecting any. I never respect any Republican votes for a Democratic nominee. So in my head, I was not even thinking of any holdovers. But now that you say it, yes, it's possible. Yeah. Pat Toomey on the way out just throws one out there for the people of Pennsylvania. Who knows? We'll see. Um, with that said, that would be an upset perhaps, but the upsets we're going to focus on is the action happening on the tennis court. And again, so much for us to discuss in Miami, 11 of the 14 women's seeds knocked out on the day. And, you know, we want to get into some of the performances that stood out the most. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out here on the Mini Break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And, you know, sometimes there's a lull in the numbers, particularly in between Grand Slams, as there's a long layoff between the Australian Open and the French Open. And yeah, helps that we have 1,000 level events going on. But seriously, month after month, we're setting record highs. And that's a testament to all of you who continue to tune in to tolerate our nonsense and who are clearly sharing things with your friends, growing this community. We are trying to offer you the sort of daily coverage we know you deserve to cover all of the chaos. We're immensely grateful you all continue to tune in. Of course, we are also so grateful for the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. And look, if you need anything, you deserve it. You know this, folks. 
place. You put in that hard work, whether it be at your job, whether it be in the gym, those fleeting moments you're able to spend on a tennis court, be equipped the right way. Have the right shoes, have the right clothes, have the strings, the rackets that will make you comfortable and optimize your performance. You can find it all with our friends at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com today. Not only will you get 15% off all sale items by using our promo code CR15. That's right, folks. You'll also get free shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point.com, symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's talk about the tennis that we saw unfold. And we could start with so many different matches. Again, there were a lot of upsets here today, but a player we have focused on, and I said uh, one of my hot takes to start the season was that Ann Lee would end the year as the highest-ranked American, and certainly when she started, I believe it was, what, quarterfinals, semifinals in Melbourne to start the year, it felt like things were headed in that direction. Then, of course, you know, she loses a first-round match in Australia. Tough draw for her there. We haven't seen, though, the breakout, you know, hard-court stretch we may have expected in the Middle East or at Indian Wells. And yet, you know, again, this is a signature win for Ann Lee, who ultimately earns a three-set victory today over Annette Conteve. And you look for Ann Lee, takes the first set six-love in a six-love three-six-six-four win. I just, I, when I, you know, sometimes you see, for players, you see the glaring strengths, right? For Sabalenka, right away, you could see the power. For Naomi, the serve. And, you know, for so many different players, there are so many different things. For Ann Lee, David, it's the flip side for me. It's like, what is the weakness for Ann Lee? The second serve hangs short? Okay, everyone's second serve hangs short. For someone who is not the tallest or you know the biggest player on tour, the power she can generate, her quickness to the spot, how foundationally solid she is just from a skill set standpoint, I know this is, again, one of the signature wins for her, but she was a player who was one of the rising stars at the end of last year, and this is just a course correction for me. This is this is something I thought we would get one of these victories for Ann Lee at some point in the first three months of the season. It just happened to come here in Miami. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, it's great to see Ann Lee have some strong results outside of Australia. I think it is important to clarify when we say she made the quarter the semifinals of Melbourne. We do not mean the slam, yes, <laughs> although she has she has performed well in Melbourne, the city. I was hoping on, that I said on multiple levels that I said first round loss Australian Open clarify that I mean the Melbourne warm up. But I agree. sure appreciate no, the you correction. did you yeah. did. But I, I, when you say what? Historically, when one says Melbourne, when one says yeah, Paris, sure. you think of you think of these these slam cities, and so it is it is impressive to see Anne Lee, you know, carry this form into the spring, plays within herself, clean tennis, you know, a, a, a strongly contained, you know, a serious disposition on court. I mean, this match is so much more about Annette Contified to me, unfortunately. I mean, the fact of the matter it is, Contified leaves the Sunshine Swing with a one and two record, yeah. you know. Third round loss to Marketa Von Trusova, now an, an opening round loss to Ann Lee. She was up a break in the final set. Based on her form the last five or six months, this is a match that you would have expected her to walk away with, certainly a match that you would have expected her to come back from. And it's sort of an interesting full circle moment because we go back to Contavite's first final of 2021, and it was against Ann Lee, and it was a match that did not end up completing because of the uh, quarantine uh, snap lockdown that ended up happening in the middle of that week. There's sort of a famous video of uh, Lee and Contavite fighting over the trophy. 
I guess that means custody of the Grampians trophy. Trophy does end up going to Ann Lee, yeah. at least for the foreseeable future. But you know, this for me is they should have. If this was wrestling, they would have brought the trophy and they would have had it somewhere on the sideline and they would have said, "Hey, this is a two for match." Yeah, you advance in Miami, but the winner takes the trophy home. It would certainly be less obstructive than having a car on court, yeah. for example. <laughs> you know, you're not going to bump into the Grampians trophy trophy. That's for sure. But I mean, for me, I mean, especially in the wake of the Ash Party retirement, and we're looking at what's going to be in all likelihood a very contentious race for number one for the next several months. Contavite was looking very much to be in the hunt for that. And now coming off of a really underwhelming sunshine swing, a lot tougher to keep her in that conversation. And this was really a half of the draw that you would have expected her. The Annette Contavite, as of a few weeks ago, certainly the one who won St. Petersburg, made the finals in Doha to really take advantage of she's out of the draw now and it's it's really a tough one and and as strong of a player as she can be on clay and grass it's just another big tournament a tournament that matters that she is underperforming in and and now when you really start to stack them up the only big tournament of note that she's really performed her best at was guadalajara a tournament that she needed to that she qualified for on the strength of smaller tournaments so it really becomes a a dichotomous narrative for Annette Consovite. And I don't know where to put her in that conversation. She was one who, when we discussed sort of the A and B tier, is starting to sink back into tier B. So to your point, the race for number one is now wide open. And certainly with Annette Conteve, given the strength of her back half of last season, it feels like everything is low-hanging fruit for her in terms of picking up points because there wasn't a definitive second-week run at a slam last season. And I do think it's worth noting the glass-half-full perspective, if you are Annette Conteve, is that you still have the French Open and Wimbledon to really consolidate your top 10 ranking. And if you make fourth rounds there, quarterfinals there, you will be a top 10, very likely a top five seed come the U.S. Open in New York. And that's again last year, a three-set loss for her, a really fun match against Iga Swiatek at that U.S. Open. You feel like if she's playing her best tennis, she should make the second week in New York. And you mentioned it. She's good across surfaces. She's a threat to make the second week at each of these slams. From a ranking perspective, I don't think this loss eliminates her in that race to number one. And obviously it's wide open and no one is eliminated at this point from the race to number one. That said, I guess what is so frustrating about this result is once again, Annette Conteve just wasn't able to manufacture enough free points, wasn't able to generate enough pace to overwhelm someone who doesn't have a definitive weakness. And again, that speaks to the strength of Anne Lee, but Annette Conteve is really good. She is rock solid at just about everything. What is she elite at? And to, you do you have to have an elite skill at something to be the number one player in the world, to come through in moments like this and you look for Annette Conteve? I mean, again, it's one match. 10 of 12 on break, uh, excuse me, two of 12 on breakpoint chances in this match. Meanwhile, you know, one of six in uh, against break points. She wasn't able to find the big return or she would, you know, it was returns long. How many times did she miss the return on those break points? I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think at least four or five of them were missed returns. And again, with all due respect to Ann Lee, that serve is not the foundation of Ann Lee's success. I'm... It's tough to be concerned because I'm, I'm blanking. Who did Annette Conteve lose to at Indian Wells? It wasn't, it, it was a three set loss to Marquette of Andrusova. You, uh, yeah, no, I'm not blanking. Say, you don't remember who she lost to? <laughs> See, I just, it's after midnight. It just takes me a second to get winding up. Yes, I remember. I think in a vacuum, let's look at each loss individually. 
Third set losses to Ann Lee and and, and uh, Marquette Evangelista. Both matches where, you, as you mentioned, she's up a break in the third on Lee. Had a million chances against Von Drusova as well. I don't think either loss is particularly disqualifying. It's when you compound everything, plus the track record pre this breakthrough run, that's where things get a little bit concerning. So first of all, I am a glass half empty person. I'm not, I'm showing a bottle. <laughs> that's why we're a good for illustration. But I mean, I think. Annette really had a clear mission coming into 2022, which is prove that you can perform at the level that you performed at the smaller indoor events and to a lesser extent in Guadalajara. Obviously, that was very impressive, but she was already there. That was a, a, a tournament that she was already dropped into up against a lot of tired top eight players. Could she perform her best in a big draw at a big tournament? And yes, she did do it in Doha, which is the so bigger So that was the two what events. I was going to add. Doha, How Dubai? about the fact she beats Ostapenko, she beats Jabour, she beats Mertens. Now, I don't believe she played Dubai. Or, or excuse me, I don't believe she played. Uh, no, 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 she didn't play Dubai. She didn't she play did, Dubai because yeah. she had won St. Petersburg. Yeah, yeah, and so and that's another one, St. Petersburg. By the way, that's a really good win. And if you watch that victory over Sakari in what was that, the final three set match, that was a really yeah. fun match and a really high level. I, that's why I'm not concerned. That's why I'm still glass half full because it's like it's nomenclature 500, 1000. Tell me the field. Tell me who you played. And you look at that St. Petersburg run. She beats Ostapenko. She beats Benchit. She beats Kirstea. She beats Sakari. And then she follows it up, making that final in Doha. Yeah, it's a disappointing sunshine swing. I'm not hitting the panic button. I'm still glass half full. Yeah, I think I think it's, the, it's just frustrating because we as insiders, yeah, sure. we are watching Doha, Dubai, St. Petersburg, yes. and everybody is watching, to a, maybe not everybody, but a lot more people sure. are watching Indian Wells in Miami. And here you're watching the number three seed who is an elite ball striker, well, an elite ball striker. I will say that is probably her signature strength. You're right. Not a overwhelmingly powerful server, overwhelmingly powerful return, but just a classic clean hitter of the ball. Second, maybe I would say only to Naomi Osaka in terms of just clean ball striking off the ground, flat hitting, just really aesthetic, easy to watch. Um, and it's just, it's not panning out for her in the, in the tournaments that matter. And I think the tournaments that matter for in the minds of people who are keeping track of the sport would be the four Grand Slams, your Indian Wells, your Miami, your Madrid. You know, th these are tournaments now that are really starting to rack up that they're not they're not falling Contavite's way. And so she has an opportunity now in the clay court swing to make up for that. But it's disappointing, you know, especially compounding it with Australia. But again, she has had some tricky draws. I mean, she did get Clara Towson in Australia. She did get Anne Lee here. She got more kind of entries of an Indian Wells. So in some ways it's mitigating, but when her main mission was to perform well, for at least for me, maybe this wasn't her mission. Maybe someone yeah, should tell her it should sure. be her mission, is to perform at these tournaments that matter. I really wanted to see it happen before the clay court swing. And now it's not going to have, it won't have happened. And it's especially disappointing because she has performed well in Miami in the past, making the semifinals here at the Hard Rock Stadium in 2019. Yeah, I, so that's fair. And by the way, would Rabakina be on that clean hitting list? I'd put her above Conteve. I like, again, with how well she strikes the ball. Come on. When, when Elena Rabakina says, I'm putting this forehand away, it's either an error or it's a winner. And again, that's why she has the invitation to Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club because she can come hang out. She has it. There's so many different like power aesthetics know, to me. Like so I would, true. I would group like Rabakina and Ostapenko in one group. I would group uh, Samsonova and Osaka. By the way, should be in that group too. Yeah, it's Samsonova, Sabalenka. Like they all yeah. kind of hit a, well, they all hit a hard ball, but they all hit like a different kind of ball if that makes sure. sense like yeah. like Rabakina's is like a line drive and yeah. so is Ostapenko's in many respects where I feel like Contavite 
and Osaka's are, it's a heavier ball. And then obviously, you know, um, Sabalenka and then to a lesser extent, Samsonova, it's just like, you know, an, uh, a, a missile <laughs> coming off a racket. It's a totally different level of power. I would like to preface this by, again, I was in college, but on our club tennis national team, we my, we, we had a girl, uh, someone on our team play by the name of Laura ukros Tez, who was a top 35 junior in the world and played Michigan varsity, hurt her knee, and was like, ah, I'm just going to graduate, and now works, you know, is at Harvard Business School and doing exceptional things. But obviously, she was at a different level than the rest of us on the team, just in terms of ball striking, how clean it was. And whenever someone on another team would piss her off, whether it was a bad line call or whatever it was, I remember semifinals UCLA, they got hooked three times in a row. And she goes, oh, it's girls 12s. Okay, good to know. And she looks at Carrie, her partner, and she goes, don't worry, we're not gonna lose another game. And she hit a forehand and on the changeover, I couldn't help myself. And I go, Laura, that forehand was just so sexy. Because there's just like, she struck the ball. I was just like, I can't do that. And you did. And oh my God, was that attractive. And I would like to point out that she dated my older brother for three years and they were dating at the time. And I was like, I just want you to know that was, and like there are times when, yeah, sometimes again, an Ostapenko backhand down the line when she strikes it earlier, just like, oh my goodness, um, that is something else. And that's that category. I agree. It's it's different type of shot off of each of those rackets, but that those are the ones you're just like, I can't do that. Normal humans can't do that. And so, you know, again, I think Ann Lee does have a little bit of that in her, particularly given the speed, the size, and just to finish this conversation, because yeah, justifiably, we have to talk about the Conteve side of the equation, but for Ann Lee, who again, you know, at the end of last season was as in form as any other player in the women's game and outside of losses to Clara Towson was beating just about everyone and you look for her now to start the season seven and six overall and you know a couple of losses to Shin Yu Wong who has played well of late is another one of those rising stars certainly in the game outside of that you know a loss to Sakari uh, I don't think that's a particularly poor loss Assassinovich three set loss. Sure, she wants that match back. Where are you with Ann Lee, who obviously was a highly touted junior as well, and is someone who, twenty one years old, is ascending the rankings? Yeah, I just feel like I need more like elite data points from okay. Ann Lee. I mean, I think she could really. I mean, she has an opportunity against uh, Allison Risk. You know, to maybe potentially set up a fourth round against and even a Naomi Osaka. I mean, I certainly would have. I re- really did want to see that Contified Osaka matchup. So that's a lot of it is is disappointment that we're not getting that. But I think. You know, Anley's a solid player, and you go back to that Wimbledon final between her and Claire Liu, and I think uh, Liu had gotten a lot of the shine because she did win that title and was looking to be that sort of next, you know, big American player. And she's performed some solid tennis in the last couple of months, but Anley has really been quite consistent. You're right, winning that title in Tenerife last fall. So again, <laughs> to a lesser extent, uh, to contemplate trying to translate these sort of small stage successes to big. Um, to big stage successes. She certainly doesn't have the pressure uh, that I am putting on Contavite at big stages. So maybe she's got that going for her. Fair. I'm just saying a lot of points to pick up for her here in the clay court, grass court swing. So be on the lookout for Ann Lee to make a top 40 push, maybe even be seated come the U.S. Open. And again, my hot take, she may end the year as the highest ranked U.S. woman. Let's move on to another one of the upsets on the day. And we won't spend 15 minutes on every match, but certainly I feel like we should talk about 
Katarina Sinyakova's three-set victory over Emma Raducanu because if you watched the match unfold, felt like Raducanu had grasped control of that match, and she had her opportunities up 6-3, four all, second set, had some opportunities to break, give herself a chance to serve for the match. She ultimately wasn't able to do it. And you look for uh, Sinyakova, who, you know, had multiple set points. And Raducanu Duracredit came up with some big forehands to fight those set points off, but gets that break for 6-4. Raducanu then goes up a break 4-3 in the third set. Felt like she had wrestled control, but Sinyakova kept swinging freely, kept attacking. Ultimately, it's a 3-6, 6-4, 7-5 victory for Sinyakova. We play a game in our college shows called Good Win, Bad Loss. I thought this was a good win for Sinyakova, who just kept swinging and swinging and swinging and eventually got a 15-20 minute stretch, you know, in two different sets where the big backhands cross court, they were landing and they were getting Raducanu stretched. And certainly I think physically Raducanu did wear down as this match went on. But I think that's a credit to the aggression of Sinyakova who can play these sorts of matches. And, you know, again, I wouldn't say she's one of the 45 top 20 players right now on the WTA tour, but on the right day, she plays aggressive front foot tennis that can disrupt the rhythm of anyone one. Ultimately, I thought that's what she did to Raducanu, who had her chance to win this match, but wasn't able to do it. I mean, Sinyatkova is sort of an interesting um, subject to talk about because she was certainly of the Krejcikova Sinyatkova partnership had long been the more celebrated singles player. And I believe even scored a win over Serena Williams um, last spring before Krejcikova went on to win Roland Garros. And a few of my friends and I joked that Sinyatkova would win Wimbledon just in sheer rage at the fact that her at having been usurped um, by her longtime doubles partner. That said, I mean, um, another colleague of mine brought up an interesting point. I feel like this interview with Craig Tizer after the Australian Open is really becoming more and more prescient. He had sure. mentioned after the Australian Open that Barty's you know, main weakness when it would come to winning the US Open would be the lightness of the ball. And I we're starting to really see how much that lighter ball perhaps helped Radu Kanu make up for the lack of firepower that she has off the ground and hit her way to 10 straight matches because now we're seeing these losses really starting to rack up for Emma against a wide variety of opponents, whether it's a Petra Martins in Indian Wells and Yachka Vahir, you know, Danka Kavanich in Australia, Daria Seville um, in Mexico, although Radu Kanu did end up retiring there with injury. This is not great for Emma. I mean, you just, you're looking for her to kind of get some confidence, get some momentum. She's getting really close. She's playing a lot of tough matches. I mean, we've talked about Iga Svantec winning, learning on the job. But for Iga, she's winning these matches. She's figuring them out as they're happening. You know, it's it's one thing to learn from experiences. It's one thing, it's even more impressive to figure things out while you're winning these matches and be able to come away with even more uh, lived experience in that sense. It's just a rough one that she was serving for the match and could not get it done. Sinyachkova was taking multiple medical timeouts throughout the first set and a half, having shoulder issues, some kind of some kind of injury that you would have thought, you know, Emma's got this, she's going to figure it out. And now we're heading into the clay court season for her. It's it's sort of a similar scenario, a little bit, not quite the same because Kantabai did post some several, you know, impressive results in the first three months of the season. But this was sort of her prime time to put a stamp on her year to back up this U.S. Open title. And now, now she's heading into sort of unfamiliar territory in Europe on the clay. And that's sort of all leading up to what's going to be this Wimbledon anniversary. And you don't know what's going to happen there. And you just worry for her because she's still so young and is still experiencing everything sort of on the fly. And 
is dealing with a ton of pressure. You know, there's there's always a pretty fairly decent British tennis core at Miami at a lot of these tournaments. So it's not like she's escaping, you know, the media spotlight when she's at, you know, when she's away from home. So it's, you wonder what it's going to take for Raducanu to kind of replicate the sort of miracle run, even to a slight extent, you know, and, and it's, she's kind of has no options because she's not at, you know, being ranked, you know, just shy of the top 10. It's not like she could start playing ITF tournaments sort of quietly to rack up some wins. I mean, you're just, she's kind of between a rock and a hard place. You would hope, I think the one smart decision she made was to try to play Mexico. Of course she played, ended up getting injured, but I think the more smaller tournaments she could play to maybe rack up some confident confidence some rack up some wins, kind of figure herself out. You know these these spotlight losses are really starting to rack up, and that's 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 never great for someone who's trying to figure out her own identity on court. She's four and eight since the U.S. Open. Now, here's a couple things: when she's on her front foot, she looks as exceptional as she looked at the U.S. Open. When she's taken, you know, her ability to go backhand down the line to get her opponent stretched, then take that next forehand early up the line and move forward behind it. It's an elite combination. It's going to work for her for a very long time. The return of serve is real. And she had 17 breakpoint chances today. Now, she only converts five of them, but she had 17. She just, you know, again, the strokes are compact. Her ability to hit the return of serve comfortably, she's got that. No doubt about it. The serve was an issue for her, and it's hanging short, and it gets her stretched. And while she's a good mover, she's not a great mover. She wants to be in her, on her front foot in the center of the court. I don't think she's quite as fluid, you know, as the Conteves, Sakaris of the world, not even on that level, you know, the, the Sviantex, at least yet. And again, she's still very, very young. Um, but those are two things, movement and serve, that's just come with time and come with, you know, dedication and, you know, time put in, which... Again, is there any indication that Radakanu won't have that? I would say no. It's still very early in her career, and it's all it's all free until that U.S. Open run, right? It's all points added, really, until we get there. And certainly, this sunshine swing was an opportunity on the hard courts, you felt, for her to make a big push. But I still do think it's worth noting, barring something going drastically wrong— no matter what, she will still, at age 20, 21 years old, be able to set her own schedule, play whatever sort of events she wants. And of course, pressure will accumulate. If not for the pressure she puts on herself, there will be... See, I hate attacking straw man and saying the media is going to go after her because show me the media members who are going after her and I'll say, why are you taking them seriously? They shouldn't be respected. I don't think any respected member of the media is going to put additional pressure on her, but she will put pressure on herself. Sponsors will put pressure on her. The things that come with winning a Grand Slam early, that said foundationally again, like... Three set loss, and she had a million chances. It sucks that she didn't win, but I don't think she looked that bad from a tennis standpoint. You know, you contrast her to someone like Ostapenko, and, you know, yeah. Raducanu has some phenomenal technique, and that was something that really stuck out to me during the US Open run. It felt like something that was going to take her far, even in spite of, you know, kind of learning on the job, you know, even contrasted to Alayla Fernandez, who has sort of, you know, unorthodox technique, who also <laughs> took an, an mm-hmm. untimely exit today um, to Carolina Mukhova. But, you know, it's just, it's it is a little startling. I did expect her to be able to sort of win the matches that she's supposed to win, quote unquote. I mean, and that's you know that list got very long after she won the U.S. Open of players that you would have thought that she would have a, have have a decent shot at beating. So it's it's just again it's it's the comp it's the compound factor. You know, if you take this match in a vacuum, Sinyachkova is a player who can win a good match on any given day. It you know it came down to margins, but to have two really tight losses back to back to sort of veteran players, it sort of exposes her lack of experience, the lack of perhaps confidence. And 
you know, this is someone who retired from Wimbledon with, you know, breathing issues was perhaps overcome by the the moment. You hope that, you know, that there's a strong team around her to keep her focused and to keep her in good mental spirits and strength so that, you know, this is going to be a really tough portion of the season coming up for her with Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And, and, and so you hope that she's being helped, you know, deal with what is to come. And then, as you said, regardless of what happens, this is a person who's going to have a lot of opportunities to even play tournaments, regardless of where her ranking is, because she is just that you know, magnetic. She's a strong player. She's a strong draw, you know, at any event. So it's, it doesn't, it, it isn't necessarily the case that the U.S. Open is a drop dead date, but if you're coming fresh off of that slam, you do want to feel like you've achieved something else in the year since you won that big title, lest you kind of have to kind of deal with the spiraling that, that, that may come with an early loss in New York. Very well said. With that in mind, let's move on to our next player, someone who is fighting to work themselves and solidify a spot in the top 100, and someone who, in my opinion, with today's results, is now the favorite to win the Miami Open, and that's Naomi Osaka, who looked very good in her victory over Astra Sharma, 3-4, and four, a match that, again, scoreline-wise, or 4-3 and three, doesn't sound like a blowout, but at no point was Naomi Osaka threatened on serve, and today, she absolutely cruised against Angelique Kerber. You look for Osaka, 6-2-6-3 victory. She was serving bombs. She was the aggressor. She looks comfortable. She looks confident with each passing match. She's the favorite, like, to make it to the final. No, no, everyone's out knocked out. Like, again, you lost Sabalenka today. You lost Conteve today. You lost everyone. 11 of the 14 seeds in the top half of the draw. Am I wrong to think Osaka with the form I've seen in the first two matches? And again, context being key, if you throw out the Kudermatova match, she loses to Anisimova in three sets. That was fantastic tennis, 7 6 in the third. Uh, yeah, 7 6 in the third. She loses three sets to Leila Fernandez at the U.S. Open last year. She was right there in that match and had her opportunities to win it in the second set. She loses to Jill Teichman in three sets in Cincinnati. Teichman goes on to make the final and play the lights out throughout the course of the week, just perfect conditions for her. If you look, again, at each loss in a vacuum, I don't think Naomi Osaka has played poorly. Now, has she been at her best? No, of course that's not the argument I'm making. But she is still, along with Ashley Barty, the only players to hold serve above 80% on the WTA Tour. That just freaking matters. And we're on a hard court. I think Naomi Osaka is the favorite to win this event. And my that's what my eyes are telling me. That's what the past results tell me as well. Live from the vacuum, it's the Mini Break Podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, uh, listen, it has been a rough year for Naomi Osaka. And of it course. really was sort of a full circle moment because you think of where she was in Miami last year. She was on a 23-match winning streak. She had won the last two major titles. She was the obvious favorite to be the de facto world number one. People were talking about how could Barty be ranked number one when Osaka's won the last two slams. And things took a very decisive turn in both directions for both Barty and Osaka, sort of seemingly immediately thereafter. Um, This was the most confident, happy I have seen Naomi Osaka. And it it is sort of interesting the the things that she was talking about, both off-court uh, in press and on court with Andrew Krasny. I mean, talking about, um, you know, the the four and one head to head record against Kerber, the fact that she had overheard, you know, Caroline Wozniacki at the Tennis Channel booth, you know, projecting Kerber to make it past uh, Naomi in that match and taking these things as challenges as opposed to feel really internalizing them and and taking on that extra pressure. I mean, it, it really is a wonder what a little therapy will do for yeah. a person. I mean, we're in, the, we're in the wake of Naomi's, you know, recent announcement that she has 
finally at long last, you know, sought out therapists, uh, sought out therapy and a therapist and even joked, you know, in her, you know, post-match press conference, you know, it only took me a year after Roland Garros um, to, to make that step. And, you know, Sister Mari, you know, encouraged her to do so when Bizet co-signed the decision. I mean, that's, that's the best decision she could have possibly made. And I'm, you know, one or two therapy sessions do not change a person, but I do think it was probably cathartic for her to start getting some of these emotions out there to a neutral party who can maybe offer some solutions and sort of recontextualize things for her. I mean, it was just calm, cool, and collected from Naomi from start to finish. She talked about being focused in, for each and every point. That is not something that we've seen from Naomi over the last year. I mean, you, you talk about those, a lot of those matches, certainly the Fernandez match, Teichman, even Von Drusseva in at the Olympics. I mean, this this was not Naomi by any stretch of the imagination at her best. When she is at her best, she is by far the best hardcore player, I would say, of the last decade, perhaps. I mean, we're we're edging into the fact, you know, we're edging into like, you know, 20, 20, 2015, 2025 territory. And 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 uh that's those statistics certainly would favor, I think, Osaka at this point with her four, you know, major hardcore titles. Yeah, I mean if, when the draw first came out, the top half of the draw was certainly looking like the softer half, and I was definitely giving big ups to Simona Halep, you know, to Indian, to back up her Indian Wells semifinal run and make the final here. She pulls out, but you look at Naomi Osaka, and she's, you know, one of the quote-unquote unseated players causing chaos, but she's certainly the one that I would pick to to make the final here. A little bit of recency bias, you know, to go from, you know, predicting that she's you know, never going to win a match again to, to making the final of a big tournament. But I think if she could stay in this mindset and... You know, she's probably in one of the trickier sections of this quarter with with potentially placing the playing the winner of Lee and Risk and getting to play Mukova next, who's not a comfortable opponent by any stretch of the imagination. But it's just great to see Naomi playing well, seemingly very happy on court on, you know, happy after the match. That's the most important thing. So you would hope that that kind of um mindset shift is rewarded with a good result because you always hope that 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 sort of stuff is reinforced and i think that's she needs all the reinforcement she can get right now and i hope she gets it according to our friends at tennis abstract the singles forecast right now danielle collins your favorite to emerge out of the top half now obviously they don't factor in her recent injuries and the fact that she hasn't played much in the most immediate future, but she's at 21.4%. Osaka, 18.7%. Then you have Belinda Bencic, 17.2%. Own Jabour, 15.5%. Then a big drop-off. Yeah, that sounds like an open section to me. We thought we might get Osaka Bencic in Australia. Maybe we're going to get it in Miami instead. With that said, we play a game in our college tennis shows. I call it good win, bad loss. We decide whether to result again credit to the team that won it or is this more indicative of the player who the result went against that's what we're going to do for the rest of these upsets here on the women's side and again feel free to respond as strongly and in whichever fashion that you'd like David let's start with a return to the court Carolina Pliskova makes her return to court here in Miami now she drops her first match 6-3-6-3 to Kalinskaya good win for Kalinskaya bad loss for Pliskova oh bad loss for Pliskova I mean like it's she was she's obviously this is only her second match of the year she was very close to winning her first match uh in indian wells it did not go her way kalinska i mean and, and that's mostly a function of how i feel about kalinskaya relative to the top players i See, feel like that, that was i couldn't a disagree that, with you more sorry yeah go no i mean i just think that plishkova should be able to figure that match out the fact that it was so decisive for kalinskaya who is not you know Talk about, you know, Kontavai not having, you know, a major weapon. This is a, a player who, you know, 
is not is, is sort of like this generation's Kirilenko in many respects. I mean, just not someone who is going to really challenge you with firepower. So the fact that it didn't even go three, yeah, I'm 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 leaning on Plushkeva. Fair, on but the backhand for Kalinskaya is so smooth, so smooth. It's just. It, I'm a fan, and she took that power Pliskova offered her, and she's the sort of athlete that can take that power and redirect it. I, I think there's a place for her in the top 50 in the, for the foreseeable future. Just physically, she can hang at the WTA level. Arena Camille Bagu, 6464 over Arena Sabalenka. Good win, bad loss. Bad loss. I did not like it. The fact that Sabalenka really seemed like she was getting her act together in the Middle East. I don't even think she had, I don't even think she broke Bagu today. I mean, that's. That is not great. You it's know, just I mean, the it, errors, <sighs> the errors, they compound match. There's just no rhythm, none at all. And she's never been a player who thrives on rhythm, but it's even within games. Like you just don't know. You two points on, four points off. It's just it, this has never been a fruitful swing for her, particularly. But you know, and she's got a lot of points to defend over the next couple of weeks. Finalist in Stuttgart, winner in Madrid. You know, and then obviously the Wimbledon semifinal, you know, it's the rubber is really going to hit the road for her in a couple of weeks. And you hope that she's mentally ready to kind of get that, you know, hit that reset button. She was able to figure out clay for large stretches of last spring. So maybe the surface switch will kind of help her, but it's just, it's disappointing because again, you know, coming into the season, I really expected big things of her and it's just been, you know, plugging in one, you know, leaky, leaky part of the dam after the other. Jeff Sackman keeps plugging in new numbers. He can't solve it. He's trying to solve the serve. He's trying folks, but I'm worried about him. He might have it a panic attack very <laughs> coming up pretty soon. How about this one? I think this is so. First, for the record, I agree with you. I disagree on the Pliskova. I'd say that's a good win. I think Carolina Mukova's six four seven six victory over Layla Fernandez. If you watch that match, is an unequivocal good win for Mukova. A, it was swirling winds out there. B, I thought Mukova played the angles well. I thought she attacked well. She just made Fernandez uncomfortable. And given Mukova's lack of form, the injury, you know, again, she just hasn't played much for her to play at this level this soon in her comeback. I say unequivocal good win. Feels like it's time for me to say it's a good win, but it's not. It was oh, a bad let's loss go, for Fernandez. Let's go. It was Mukova's second match of the year. Fernandez was coming off of some really strong form in Mexico and Indian Wells, was really getting Mukova on the ropes in the second set. This is a match. It's, it kind of reminded me of the way the Fernandez and Isimova match was going, that Fernandez was coming back from behind, looked like she was going to figure things out in the tiebreak, force a third set. Not great. Again, not great for for Fernandez. You really, I really did think, especially having spoken to her earlier in the week, I thought she was in a really good positive mindset. You know, feeling really confident from the last couple of weeks of results. Obviously, Mukova, incredible talent. You know, an all court player. You know, a, an Australian Open semifinalist, no slouch. And I certainly am looking forward to seeing that Osaka Mukova third round. But I definitely thought that Fernandez was going to, you know, book that rematch against Naomi. And that would have been a really interesting one. Yeah, no, Mukova, that's certainly a disappointment fair. Mukova, though, you know, again, Fernandez, or Mukova went up breaks a couple of times. Fernandez got them back, but Mukova just kept attacking. And yeah, I just, I love the skill set she possesses. So I say good win. That's fine. You can say bad loss. I imagine you're not going to feel as passionately about some of the others we have, but let's go through them. Nevertheless, Sasnovich, Try me. six and four over Kasakina. Good win, bad loss. I say bad I say, loss. How do I feel? I mean, I just feel like I don't even know if I would say it's a win that I would have expected Sasnovich to take just based okay. on the last couple of weeks. Kasakina hasn't really posted anything super spectacular. So I would say it's a solid win for Sasnovich. All right. I like that. Uh, Zvonareva, three and two over Zidanzik. 
good week so far for Savannah River, making it out of qualies and 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 pulling together this win over Zidancic. I again, Zidancic's not a player who's been really lighting it up last couple of weeks. She's someone who's you know in potentially in for a big fall, a um, a French Open semifinalist. Yeah, but she, that's what I'm saying. Forget. So she's been playing for free for the past nine months, and credit yeah. to her, she made the push all the way up to number twenty two. But it's no longer, well, she's still got like two months of clay court tennis to, for it to be free, but then the French Open comes off. So it's like, n- now there's serious pressure. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm surprised to see sure. Svonareva make it into the third round. I think maybe that would probably be considered a bad loss for um, for Zidancic. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, Svonareva was coming in with quite a bit of momentum. So it's, in that context, we do, we, lest we forget, Vera Svonareva is a former world number two. Exactly. Heather Watson, 7-6 in the third over Svitolina. Oh, bad loss for Svitolina. I mean, they're, they're just really racking up. I mean, it's a shame because you thought that, you know, as difficult as her start was to 2022, you know, sort of post US Open, you know, she was feeling, you know, a lot of inspiration coming into Mexico on the back of, you know, this really terrible situation in Ukraine. And mm-hmm. it hasn't translated on court in the last couple of weeks, you know, tough loss to Osorio Serrano in Monterey and has just been sort of out of sorts in both Indian Wells and Miami. This is, a, you know, I believe she made the semifinals in quarters or semis Miami last year and remember she got killed by Barty that's right yeah, yeah. it's so it's um semis I believe yeah this is these are really starting these bad losses are really starting to rack up for for Svitolina and you wonder how much longer she is even going to feel up to this whole thing I mean she's got a lot going on emotionally she's in a happy relationship with Gael Monfils you know you know celebrating their one-year anniversary in a couple of weeks and you know I I, I just wonder how satisfying she finds you know this whole grind right now. So she's still 27, I believe. And you look for Svitolina, who 2019 season, Wimbledon semifinals, you just felt like things were clicking for her and the window was opening. Has the window closed for her to win a slam title? Like, do you see her in the mix still? I came into that US Open semifinal kind of expecting her to beat Serena, to Mm -hmm. be honest. I mean, and it was really close in those first couple of games. Svitolina did not capitalize on the early opportunities and it really slipped out of her hands. And seemingly out of nowhere she found that opportunity you know in at the u.s open last year when she was had those opportunities against leila fernandez again doesn't get it done for somebody who doesn't have those natural power that natural gift you know of the game you're only going to have so many of those opportunities so with everyone that passes you know it just the door gets expon the the opportunity just gets exponentially smaller her game is so predicated on physicality and you just wonder can she without having the weapons to generate although i do think she's gotten better on the serve and the plus one but without those big weapons can she you know again rely on her physicality seven straight times with the depth we see right now in the women's game good win for watson but i agree just a tough trend right now for svitolina ali risk two and two over alize cornet Sort of a bad loss for Cornet again, to be honest. I mean, she was coming off that Australian Open quarterfinal. It felt like, you know, she had really achieved this major milestone. Maybe it was going to inspire her to more matches, match wins, but maybe it kind of satisfied something in her competitively that we're not seeing her show up in the same way that I would have expected her to show up in the last couple of weeks. You know, even, you know, it was one of the first players to talk about wearing blue and yellow to, you know, to support Ukraine and then loses that match in Lyon. I mean, like you kind of, I don't know what's going to be that that extra push for Alize to kind of replicate the form that really took her to that seemingly you know magical quarterfinal run that match against you know uh, Simona Halep was was ugly at times but sort of you know on brand for Cornet in terms of drama theatrics and and, and epicness. It's all gravy at this point. You got your go- slam quarterfinal, but yeah. fair. Last one, Canapi three six seven five six love over Sarasuri best Torma. I mean, it's sort of, I think it would have been a good win for either of them. So I guess it's a good win for, for Kaya Kanepi. And I, and I would be curious to see if she can be the one to, um, 
to keep the run going and maybe pull off the upset against Angebor. I mean, the way that she was playing in Australia certainly indicates that she's capable yeah. of, you know, knocking the stuffing out of the ball, even at this at this point in her career. Um, but it's been rough for Cerebus Tormo since last year. You really think you really I do wonder she was what's the ceiling to. for her? Have we found it? Is this it? Just physically, she's going to give everyone tough runs. But again, can she do it three times in a row, four times in a row in a tournament, and especially at the highest level? What is she going to do to generate points easy for herself? That serve is just so attackable. Yeah. I mean, you go back to that U.S. Open match against yeah. Raducanu. I, I definitely thought that she was going to win that one. It felt like, you know, she oh, no! had the experience. Didn't happen. Yeah. She did beat Barty. She did beat yeah. Barty at the Olympics. <laughs> so we'll always, have, we'll always have Tokyo, I guess. Fair. And then the other one, some of the seeds who won. I think the thing you're probably most heard of, Bencic 3-1 over Kostyuk. That's a hell of a win for Belinda, who really has been excellent since the start of the grass court season. Um, I mean, she's, I know that she was coming off of, you know, uh, long, long-term COVID. She was yeah. having some long haul COVID symptoms at the start of the season. So this is certainly as big of an opportunity as she will ever have to rack, you know, to kind of re start the engine. If she were to lose to Watson or even to Bagu or Sasnovich in the fourth round, it really would be a missed opportunity for her. She would be sort of the clear favorite on paper. Certainly, she's the only seed left, I believe, in that in that top quarter. Now, you know, evacuated by um, both Sabalenka and Pliskova. You know, that semi uh, that potential semifinal between Bencic and Osaka '97 gals, Yannick's gals. Hmm. You know, you certainly would be looking for that one. That would be sort of an entertaining uh, clash. One that we thought that we did. Did we end up? No, we didn't end up getting it in Australia because Anisimova beat Bencic mm-hmm. in the second round. So yeah, I would I would look to see that matchup if we can yeah. get it. No, it, it'll be fun. And then you know, again. Collins, three sets over Bondar, Gavrilova, Bronzetti, both straight set victories. It was a really fun day of action, certainly in Miami. Great to see Danielle back on court getting a win as well. All right, we're going to do a quick, quick version of this as well on the men's side because no seeds yet in play. And I thought it was a pretty straightforward day of action. You know, again, we're not even going to go through all of them. I would say the standout performers, J.J. Wolf. Four and four over Daniel Altmaier. Good to see him healthy, hitting the serve, the forehand. Just again, their top 100, top 75 weapons, particularly on hard courts. I think Sebastian Corda looks exceptional. I think, you know, again, Pedro Martinez, that's one of my guys. I just think physically he can do things a bunch of guys can't. Similarly, Kasmenovic, Tommy Paul, Camille Mychek, Arthur Rindernach, uh, Rinderknash, all guys who have had success of late who continue to play well. I want to talk about the Brooksby thing separately, and I promise we'll get to that, David. Uh, but any sta- you know any standout performer, surprise results you'd like to lock in on? I obviously didn't mention Andy Murray either. Yeah. I mean, Quarter certainly broke my heart today. I was hoping to see a bit more of a competitive match from Davidovich. Folk- I thought he played pretty well in that first set. My just Quarter won all the points, the big points. Who has- Fokina, who has inspired my new favorite Twitter account at Did Foki Fall, which sort of compiles <laughs> Davidovich Fokina's really great penchant for falling down in sort of that. spectacular ways. Yeah. I mean, they're they're happening more and more often. It's one of my top two questions for Davidovich Fokina. Number one being the mismatch socks, and two, why do you fall down all the time? But he seems like he knows he he's really good at it. He's someone mm-hmm. who kind of can fall down, bounce right back up. But uh, hopefully that can. Uh, that could be a bit more metaphorical uh, in in the future. He could get back up and get big, get some some good results. It was good to see Andy Murray, you know, solve things the way that he did. And Tommy Paul, JJ Wolf, becoming a really big believer in the JJ Wolf uh, Express. Uh, spoke to him last month. Just sort of has a really good head on his shoulders. Has some great racket head speed off the forehand side. Just a really phenomenal watch. If you can uh, catch him on some of the smaller courts before he becomes uh, too famous for everybody. But yeah, that's uh, sort of an intriguing. Uh, 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 lit of results, Brooksby aside. 
Yeah, no, I mean, again, I thought Kasmanovic played really well to neutralize the Sox forehand serve. I think Jack Sox playing top 50 tennis again. He's fit, he's confident, he's hitting that forehand so well and just moving well to find it. And obviously that's always been the key for him. And so, you know, Kasmanovic has yet to lose a first round match this season. He lost 14 first round matches last year. I mean, he's in the top 50 for a reason, former world junior number one, just physically on a different level. Same with Tommy Paul, so well-rounded. Rinderknesh, the serve, the forehand, he blitzed Laszlo Dure. Yeah, I mean, Popper and Musetti was what it was. Ugo Bear gets a much-needed uh, win. I think I was talking with Gil of all the players on the ATP Tour who would wear capris. We said Yuri Vesely won, but then Ugo Bear too. Like, he would look great in capris. Yeah, I just think it would fit him. It would fit the game style. Um, that said... Let's talk about the Brooksby incident, and certainly you look for Jensen Brooksby ultimately gets a three-set victory on the day over Federico Correa, 3-6-6-2-6-3. In frustration, he throws his racket. It doesn't—I don't believe it struck the, the ball person, if my observation was correct. It certainly came close to it. You know, no harm was done. At the same time, we see this concerning trend, and we saw Jordan Thompson, who beat Songa on the day, he spiked the ball, and, you know, it, it caused an immediate flinch from a ball person near when that happened as well. This aggression on court, which has always been a part of tennis, let's be clear. And I think it happens in both the men's and women's games. Frustration mounts. You have to be insane to be a professional tennis player because it's just you out there. It's all on you. We've seen it's going to drive anyone crazy at times. That said, the flinging of objects and the you know again obviously the abuse towards officials it's unacceptable and i guess your reaction a to the brooksby incident in a vacuum that's we'll just call this podcast in a vacuum um or and b just you know the atp recently came out right with the policy that said if we see this aggression again you know now we're going to suspend you i don't know was brooksby was this a suspend a suspendable offense what's your reaction to all this i mean i think it's there's a problem in the sense that there is a, I believe there is a fine line between historically what is and has not been considered a defaultable offense. And now I think that tends to be something where it was hit in anger and it was something of a line drive. I mean, obviously the Djokovic incident is the most obvious comparison. Smacked the ball, it went right, yeah, it went right into the lines woman, match over. You know, Brooksby's is another incident similar to Kyrgios where the the object in question, both times being a racket, did hit the ground first, bounces up and sort of ricochets. And so that has typically not been something that one gets defaulted over. So that is the line. The problem is, is that we're starting to see a lot of these instances of people riding that line really stack up in mm-hmm. the period of several weeks, which is, I think that is what is shocking because then the more that that happens, the more that you feel like, well, what happens if you know, Brooksby throws it just a little bit harder. It doesn't, you know, touch the ground first and it does whack. I mean, I do believe it did end up hitting the lines person in the shoe, but not in a way that, you know, it's again, it's it's one of those um, subjective things in the moment. You know, certainly when you watch it on video over and over again, as, as GIF images allow us to do, first of all, RIP to the inventor of the GIF who passed away yesterday. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where now we're just starting to see these instances of violence and we're also being exposed. It, it, I think it's also a function of the fact that we're seeing every court now, you know, every match is available and we're seeing every match, every player, every instance of frustration that may have been happening, you know, in the past, but now we're just getting every opportunity, every point that's playing out on the, at these big tournaments. and. We're starting to see a lot of ugly behavior stack up, and, and and you do worry what will end up causing the um, 
the ATP or the WTA, the ITF to really reevaluate their rules because it does feel like the fans are certainly asking for a reevaluation, perhaps a more hardline stance, even if it's in the short term to kind of curb this behavior, I think is, is starting to become the problem because even if these individual instances would not be considered defaultable, fans don't want to see it. And ultimately the the tours are beholden to the fans because they're the ones delivering this product and the fans are saying, we don't like this product right now. Mm-hmm. You need to you know, keep your players in check. I think it, it, the ATP and WTITF can only get good points by you know laying down the law. And if it does end up making an example out of one or two players, then so be. And I thought, I thought it, it really was fascinating how people turned on Brooksby very quickly because I think he has been someone who has been beloved over the last few months. People really enjoy him. And the fact that people were really quick to criticize him for this speaks to a greater dissatisfaction with this kind of behavior. Yeah, very well said. I, I don't have much to add. I would add, the only thing I would add, excuse me, is that you saw the immediate apology from Brooksby. You saw him reach out to the player. And I'm not saying that makes it acceptable. I'm saying he realizes how quickly he was in the wrong. And, you know, again, you can only judge a man by the immediate gesture and reaction to that. You saw the reaction, the embarrassment from Brooksby immediately conveying that, that at least is, you know, a sign of him acknowledging how far in the wrong he was. At the same time, you're right. It's a, it's a disturbing trend uh, we have seen emerge. And, you know, again, that we have to draw a fine line on these incidents speaks to the frequency with which they continue to occur, and it's just unacceptable across the board. I was just saying, anything, any final thoughts? It looked like you yeah, I, and I was just yeah, I was just going to say, and I think fans are ultimately not really swayed by these yeah. public acts of contrition. I think you know they really didn't like when Kyrgios did it last Can week. I, I don't state that I think it's tennis Twitter in particular who's the least swayed, the most vocal yeah. fans. Yeah, but I think and and but they're the ones who are on board for this. I mean, if you're sure. an average tennis fan, you may not have even known that Jensen Brooksby. I mean, they Very did. True. So there was a package that that was presented to Brooksby when he did visit the Tennis Channel desk, and I think I think the um, the video team was quite zealous in showing it, even if Prakash in the in the booth really wasn't prepared to talk about it as much as the video was showing it because they they had a discussion and then they cut to a highlight reel that was just more of Brooksby throwing the racket, and so that was sort of an uncomfortable moment I think for everybody. I mean, certainly you know Brooksby out of the gate and that interview did apologize for it, was very embarrassed by his behavior. But I think people would ultimately say you shouldn't have done it in the first place. And I think, again, it's probably going to require, you would hope, you would have hoped that Azverev getting immediately pulled from the singles tournament would have kind of curbed the behavior. But I think the fact that there wasn't a harder stance against Zverev, because now we've seen the bar quite high, because I, I, I wouldn't equate by any stretch of the imagination what Brooksby or what Kyrgios did to what Zverev did. I think that was an, a total act of aggression that sort of supersedes anything right now that we've ever seen in tennis. But now that we've seen the bar up there, any subsequent action as well, you know, you didn't do Zverev like that. So why are you going to do me like that? And I think there just needs to be a complete overhaul of the rules of what is or is not acceptable. Harsher, harsher, um, harsher penalties, stricter fines. I think you would curb that behavior very quickly because I think we're, we're really starting to see a dangerous trend. Yeah. I, I, again, very well said. With that in mind, final topic for you. Best matches on day number uh, four of this event, of course, Friday's matches. I've got a bunch of them. I think the top half of the women's draw was always going to be more intriguing than the bottom half, but I do think the uh, uh, from a just the chaos standpoint, I should say, but I think okay. tomorrow's men's action is the more intriguing of the two days as well, and there's just a plethora of fun matches. 
You want to hear my top threes, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. And I suppose yeah, I'll write a breakdown if you'd like. But uh, you know, again, the problem is by the time you listen to this, the matches will have already started. That's the issue with doing previews on a daily podcast. Rogers Ostapenko, Pagula Stevens, Bedosa Buzkova. That's my top three women's matches tomorrow. What What are yours? Top three women's matches. Okay, so I would certainly we'll say, break it down by uh, category. Yeah, because there's a lot of good tennis on the day. Yeah, I mean, I would say Bedosa Buzkova for sure. You know, you you want to look at uh, Shvantec Golovic because if Shvantec wins that match, yeah. she is assured the number one ranking regardless of what that happens. That was if my she just lo- missed the cut. Yeah, if she loses, then Bedosa could get to number one, but she would have to win the title. So okay. it's it's sort of an an uh, an audacious ask from Paula Bedosa. But if anyone could do it, I would imagine it would be Paula, who did make PPG. her who did make her major, you know, stage debut in Miami back in 2015, back when she was Paula Bedosa Gibert and did mm-hmm. make the third round as a wild card. So that those would be my top two. And then, yeah, obviously Rogers Ostapenko is one. It's it's one that you look for Ostapenko to kind of turn around the disappointment from Indian Wells. She's a former finalist in Miami back when it was in Crandon Park. But I think that the, the, the conditions here would certainly favor her more here than in Indian Wells, a big opportunity for Ostapenko there, although it's just a tough opposition in terms of Shelby Rogers. In the spirit of picking something different, I would pick Ekaterina Alexandrova versus Victoria Asimranka, who has not been mentioned before on this podcast, if if our editing has has come through for us in any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I I would love to see how Asimranka has pulled up from sort of her disappointing loss in Indian Wells and Alexandrova always a fun ball striker so hopefully no that looks behind they're both the playing scene, at their David. best no <laughs> looks behind the scene for our listeners yeah I, I I think that's a good list men's side I have a final seven to choose from just missing McDonald Dimitrov who played one of my favorite Australian open matches in history that Grigor ultimately won in five I think that was 2018 or 19 Chorich Zverev played a really fun US Open third round match 2017 18 range as well. Nori Draper is really fun. Battle of the Brits. I like Kokonakis versus Schwartzman from a contrast standpoint, but my matches of the day Tiafo Nakashima, Kyrios Rublev, Sinner Rusevori. Those have my name all over it. So my, my number one is definitely Rublev Kyrios because uh-huh. I have two eyes. Um, my, my other backup would be uh, I think you always have to pick Tiafo and you always have yeah. to pick Bonfils when they're on the order of play. Um, that said, I would also look at uh, Kokonaka Schwartzman's pretty good. Yes, that was my other one. Yeah, yeah. My- <laughs> I could see it on the tip of your tongue. I could. Um, I'm the trophy there in that Sinner match. Sinner <laughs> Rusevori played in a challenger final. I want to say Numea challenger final 2020. And I believe Rusevori beat Sinner. There's a lot of similarities in their games. And Rus played maybe the best match of the Australian Open first round, losing in five sets to Felix. I'm just saying if Sinner's not healthy, not fit, Roos has too much power, he's too consistent, puts too much pressure on you, that's a really fun match. It's crazy to think that Sinner was playing a challenger Don't you think Roos and Rude have to play together at some point in doubles so you just have Team Roo? Team Roo. <laughs> yeah, two U's, too. The and then really when they happen. win the match, they should do the Hunger Games where they kiss the three fingers and do, do it in the air for Roo, and that could be their celebration, their Team Roo. Like... Right? We have to do that. Because we already, I think we already got Rude versus Rune. So now we're going to yeah. get Rue Rue. Yeah, but I need two U's. Come on. There's... Umpired by Rue Paul. Yeah, there's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rue Paul in go. the chair. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Well, with that said, any final thoughts on all things Miami? Ah, still, what are my final thoughts? I need 20 seconds of final thoughts to ensure we're over the hour mark as usual. Oh. 
contractually fabulous. obliged, as you know. It was just sort of it's it was a wacky way for, on the yeah. women's side for the Miami Open to start, especially in the wake were, of I think the Ash Barty retirement. They saw Fritz win the Indian Wells and they're like, whoa, that's our shtick. Like, don't be weird. I think especially because when we saw Barty retire and it was pretty a pretty clean Indian Wells and you felt like, OK, the tour is in in pretty good shape for the next headline to be 11 of 14 seeds exactly. exit. You know, what does the tour come to? I mean, this has been the tour. It's been Barty and the field. And sometimes the field has sort of gotten the better of Barty, even when Barty's been in the draw. So this there's no reason to say that this could not have happened if Barty was had not decided to retire, but sort of a bad not a great contrast, so you're hoping that the bottom half, which is really quite stacked, it has three of the four Indian Wells semifinalists in that half, hopefully, you know, pulling it together and 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 putting together a potential really interesting run at number one in the next couple of weeks. So that's my main takeaway is let's bring on the bottom half. That's what I like to hear. Well, with all of that said, uh, again, we'll have mini break podcast for you. Hopefully each and every day it gets a little t- tough tomorrow and on Sunday as we've got our Crack Rackets College Tennis broadcast, but hopefully we'll be able to get back to you on all that, of course, worth Noting, if you want to follow all of the SEC action happening across the country in college tennis tomorrow, turn to the team websites to follow our Crack Rackets cross-court cast. Of course, on Sunday, we'll have all the Big Ten action for you. That's going to be on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. And, you know, between all of that, again, we'll cover everything happening across levels in the tennis world. David, what do you have coming up for us? Any Miami Open coverage we should be ready for? Nothing in particular. I did have a pretty good interview with Leila Fernandez earlier this week, but I think we're going to put that on ice until Charleston. <laughs> really yeah. great chat with her, but I think in light of her exit, I Fair. think better to save those quotes for for when she is in a draw and ready to to show us her best tennis. When but the pimp's um, otherwise, in the crib, yeah, I'll drop it like a tot. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'll be covering Bedosa or Curios Rude tomorrow. Uh, Curios Rublev tomorrow, so I mm-hmm. think we'll, we'll figure that out on the fly. No, no, we're gonna do some mm-hmm. do some some match wraps. I think. Fair. Well, again, hopefully, I'm sure we'll have the chance to chat with you throughout the week. With that said, all of your updates available on CrackRackets.com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube at CrackRackets. I'm at A L Gruskin. You're D double K T N N S. DKTNNS. No, D- yeah, that's what it is. I knew there was a double in there. DKTNNS on Twitter as well. I'm sure most of you already following David. And of course, as always, a shout out to the super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for my fantastic yes, co-host David Kane, super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, my friend. Thank you.